Welcome, everyone, to episode 92 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got a crazy story for you guys today. But first, the next Patreon-exclusive bonus episode will be up next week, so make sure to subscribe to get access to the exclusive bonus episodes. $5 gets you monthly bonus episodes, and you'll instantly get access to 15 But for now, let's just get into today's episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Linwood Earl Briley, James Briley Jr., and Anthony Ray Briley were a sibling trio of serial-slash-spree killers, rapists, and robbers who were responsible for a murder and robbery spree that took place in Richmond, Virginia in 1979. Linwood murdered a woman in 1971 and served a year in reformatory. In 1979, the three siblings, with help from an accomplice, Duncan Meekins, went on a killing spree in their home city of Richmond, killing at least 11 people. Two would-be victims escaped unharmed. Linwood and James were sentenced to death. In 1984, the two elder brothers escaped death row with four other inmates, but were recaptured within three weeks. Linwood and James were executed by electric chair in 1984 and 1985. Anthony Briley and Duncan Meekins are both still incarcerated. The three Briley brothers, Linwood Earl, James Jr., and Anthony Ray, were brought up by their parents, James Briley Sr. and Bertha, in Richmond's Highland Park neighborhood. Their oldest brother, Edward Jerome, left the home to live with relatives in North Carolina in his early teen years and was not involved with his younger brother's later criminal activities. With their younger brother Anthony, Linwood and James were regarded by older neighbors as young people who would help them repair cars or mow lawns. The brothers collected exotic pets such as tarantulas, piranhas, and boa constrictors. When the brothers reached their teenage years, Bertha and James split up and she moved away. James Briley Sr., reportedly the only person the brothers respected, kept his bedroom door padlocked from the inside overnight. On January 28, 1971, 
the first killing was committed by Linwood at 16. While alone at home, Linwood fatally shot Orlean Christian, a 57-year-old neighbor, with a rifle from his bedroom window as she was hanging out some laundry on a clothesline. The crime almost went unidentified, but her relatives noticed a small bloody mark under her armpit at the viewing and asked a funeral director to re-examine the body. Upon a second examination, a small caliber bullet wound was discovered under her armpit. Standing in Christian's backyard, a detective used a sheet of plywood to represent her body, with a hole cut out to represent the wound. He determined that the bullet came from the Briley residence. There, the murder weapon was found, and Linwood admitted to the crime by saying, I heard she had heart problems. She would have died soon anyway. After his lawyer convinced the judge that the shooting had been an accident, Linwood was sent to reform school to serve a one-year sentence for the killing. James followed in his path and at a similar age was sentenced to time in juvenile hall for firing upon a police officer during a pursuit. In 1979, the three Briley brothers and an accomplice, Duncan Eric Meekins, began the seven-month series of random killings that terrified the city and surrounding region. Their first attack occurred on March 12, 1979, when Linwood knocked on the door of Henrico County couple William and Virginia Butcher. Claiming that he had car trouble and needed to use their telephone, Linwood eventually forced his way into their home. He held the couple at gunpoint and waved Anthony inside. The two Brileys tied up the couple and robbed the house, dousing each room with kerosene after stripping into valuables. As they left, a lit match was tossed on the fuel. The two hurriedly packed their stolen loot, which consisted of a television, the CB radio, a 32 caliber pistol, and jewelry into the trunk of their car and drove out of the area. William Butcher managed to free himself and his wife from their restraints, which Meekins apparently had not tied tightly enough, and escape just before the house became engulfed in flames. They would be the sole survivors of the rampage, although their cat perished in the blaze. On March 21st, Michael McDuffie, a vending machine serviceman was assaulted, shot, and robbed in his suburban home by the Brileys. Ten days later, on March 31st, Linwood shot and killed 28-year-old Edric Alvin Clark over a drug dispute involving Meekins. On April 9th, the brothers followed 76-year-old Mary Gowan across town from her babysitting job. They followed her into her home beat, raped, robbed, and shot her. They escaped from the residence with many of her valuables. The gang saw 17-year-old Christopher Phillips hanging around Linwood's parked car on July 4th. Suspecting that he might have been trying to steal the vehicle, the gang surrounded him and dragged him into a nearby backyard. There, the three brothers wrestled him to the ground. When Phillips screamed for help, Linwood killed him by dropping a cinder block onto his skull. On September 14th, DJ John Harvey Gallagher was performing with his band 
at a South Richmond nightclub. Stepping outside between sets for a break, he inadvertently came right into the hands of the Brileys. Having been looking around town for a victim all night without success, they decided to lie in wait for whoever might happen to step outside. Gallagher was assaulted by Linwood and put into the drunk of his own Lincoln Continental. He was then driven out to the ruins of a paper mill on Mayo Island, located in the middle of the James River, where he was removed from the trunk of his car and shot dead at point-blank range in the head. Six dollars was taken from his wallet and divided up. Gallagher's body was then dumped into the river. The remains were found two days later. When arrested months later, Linwood was still wearing a ring stolen from Gallagher's hand. On September 30th, 62-year-old private nurse Mary Wilfong was followed home to her Richmond apartment. The brothers surrounded her just outside the door, and Linwood beat her to death with a baseball bat. The brothers then entered her apartment and robbed it of valuables. Five days later, on October 5th, just two blocks from the Briley home on 4th Avenue, 75-year-old Blanche Page and her 59-year-old boarder Charles Garner were murdered by the brothers. Page was bludgeoned to death, while Garner was fatally assaulted and stabbed to death with various weapons, which included a baseball bat, five knives, a pair of scissors, and a fork. The scissors and fork were left embedded in Garner's back. The victims of the final murders were the family of Harvey Wilkerson, a longtime friend of the brothers. On the morning of October 19th, despite having promised to judge earlier that day that he would stay out of trouble while on parole, James led his brothers on the prowl that night for yet another victim. Upon seeing the brothers down the street, Wilkerson, who lived with his 23-year-old common-law wife, Judy Barton, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and her five-year-old son, Harvey Wayne Barton, instinctively closed and locked his door. This action was noticed by the brothers, who then walked over to Wilkerson's front door. Terrified by their potential response if he refused them entry, Wilkerson allowed them in. Both adults in the home were overpowered, bound and gagged with duct tape. Linwood then assaulted Judy Barton in the kitchen, where she was raped within hearing distance of the others. Meekins continued the sexual assault, after which Linwood dragged Barton back into the living room, briefly rummaged in the premises for valuables, and then left the house. The three remaining gang members covered their victims with sheets. James told Meekins, You've got to get one. Upon which Meekins took a pistol and fatally shot Wilkerson in the head. James then shot Barton to death. Harvey followed shortly. Police happened to be in the general vicinity of the neighborhood and later saw the gang members running down the street at high speed. They did not know where the shots had been fired. The bodies were not discovered until three days later but the brothers were all arrested soon afterwards. During interrogation by police, Meekins was offered a plea agreement in return for turning state's evidence against the Brileys. He took the offer, 
and provided a full detailing of the crime spree. As a result, he escaped a death penalty and was incarcerated under an alias at an out-of-state prison away from the Briley brothers. Under the agreement, Meekins was given a life sentence plus 80 years, which at the time of conviction would make him eligible for parole after serving 12 to 15 years. A single life sentence with parole eligibility was handed down to Anthony Briley, the youngest brother of the trio, due to his limited involvement in the killings. Because of Virginia's trigger man statute, both James and Linwood received numerous life sentences for murders committed during the spree, but faced capital charges only in cases where they had physically committed the actual killing of the victim. Linwood was sentenced to death for the abduction and murder of Gallagher, while James received two death sentences, one for each of the murders of Judy Barton and her son Harvey. Both were sent to death row at Mecklenburg Correctional Center near Boydton in early 1980. Linwood and James Briley were the ringleaders in a six-inmate escape from Virginia's death row at Mecklenburg Correctional Center on May 31, 1984. During the early moments of the escape, in which a coordinated effort resulted in, in inmates taking over the death row unit, both Briley's expressed strong interest in killing the captured guards by dousing them with rubbing alcohol and tossing a lit match. While Lloyd Turner, another death row inmate, convicted of murder, executed by lethal injection on May 25, 1995, stepped in James's way and blocked him from doing so. Meanwhile, Wilbert Lee Evans, on death row after being convicted of the murder of Alexandria City Sheriff's Deputy William Truesdale, prevented Linwood from raping a female nurse. Evans was executed on October 17, 1990. Despite pleas for clemency and confirmation from the Mecklenburg guards who said that they owed their lives to Evans. Alexandria Commonwealth's attorney, John Clock, opposed the clemency and Democratic Governor Douglas Wilder, the state's first African American governor, ultimately denied clemency. The group's initial plan was to escape into Canada. Two inmates, Lim Davis Tuggle Jr., who was convicted of raping and murdering one woman shortly after being released from another such crime, and Willie Leroy Jones, who was convicted of two capital murders, and he was executed on September 11, 1992. Almost succeeded, making it as far as Vermont before being captured at gunpoint by the police. The group was held at Marble Valley Correctional Facility in Rutland, pending their extradition back to Virginia. Splitting off from their two remaining co-escapers at Philadelphia, the Briley's went to live near their uncle, Johnny Lee Council, in the, in the north of the city. They were captured on June 19th by a heavily armed group of FBI agents and police who had determined their location by placing wiretaps on their uncle's phone line. In short order, the remaining appeals ran out for both brothers. 
Several weeks before his execution, James Briley married a writer who was convinced of his innocence claims. Evangeline Grant Redding on March 28, 1985, in a prison ceremony attended by his father, James Sr. The brothers were executed in the electric chair at the Virginia State Penitentiary in Richmond. Linwood on October 12, 1984, and James on April 18, 1985. Linwood's last meal consisted of grilled tenderloin steak, a baked potato, green peas, a salad with French dressing, rolls with butter, cake, peaches, punch, and milk. His last words were, I am innocent. James's last meal consisted of fried shrimp with cocktail sauce and a lemon-lime flavored soda soft drink. In his final moments, he smiled at the witnesses and twice asked them, Are you happy? Before James was executed, Shirley Barton Hayes, the mother of Judy Barton, pleaded for him to admit his guilt. She said she didn't believe in capital punishment, but asked him to confess so his soul would be right with God. The day James was executed, fellow inmates tried to delay the process by attacking the guards with homemade knives. Nine guards and one inmate were injured. Linwood was survived by one son, Norman, Norman Ampey, who later served time in prison for bank robbery and died in 2015. James is survived by three daughters who live in Richmond. The brothers are buried at the Council Family Cemetery Plot in Bethel, North Carolina. Anthony Ray Briley was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder three of those for the Barton family murders. He received a life sentence plus 119 years with the possibility of parole. Anthony avoided capital murder charges since it could not be proven that he had personally committed any of the murders. He is currently incarcerated at Augusta Correctional Center about 20 miles outside of Staunton, Virginia. To date, all of his applications for parole have been denied by the State Parole Board, as have those of Duncan Meekins, despite recommendations from former prosecutors Robert J. Rice and Warren von Schulch, who have cited Meekins' assistance in prosecuting and convicting the Briley brothers. All murder is senseless, but it, it just seems like these guys were just doing it for fun. Whether they were robbing or not, they were having fun killing people, and they just wanted to see how long they could go without getting caught. I'm glad the two of them have faced justice, and the other two, hopefully, are never released from prison. Now... Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com, and it's their experience while cat-sitting. A couple of years ago, a co-worker was stressing out. Her husband and son wanted to go on a hunting and camping trip, and she had no one to watch her cat. I told her 
that I love kitties and I would be very happy to watch them. The night before she left, I went to her house to see where the cat food was and what she needed done while she was gone. I had never been to her house before. She kind of showed me around and they were getting ready to sell the house. She and her husband wanted something that was theirs, as this house had been the divorce house of one of them. I met the kitty, her name was Sophie, and as a normal cat, I gushed over how wonderful and pretty she was, and she ignored me with disgust. While we were there visiting, for a moment, she went to get her husband. There were two rooms upstairs, and I thought that he was in the first one that was like a kid's room. The room wasn't being used, as most of the kids had moved out. The only kid at home was her son, and he was in the basement. The room upstairs that wasn't the master bedroom was being used as kind of a storage room. There were a few boxes and some odds and ends waiting to be packed. I was confused my friend went to get her husband outside, as I was so sure that he was in that bedroom upstairs. But suddenly, he appeared from outside. I kept looking at the doorway, waiting for someone to come out, even though we had been through that area of the house, and I knew where everyone was. The first day I went to go take care of Sophie, my husband went with me. I went in the house, and it felt very cold, but there was something else too. It was that room again. I spoke very loudly to Sophie and I asked her where she was and then I went downstairs to get her food containers and bring them upstairs to fill. I saw Sophie sitting back in a corner of the basement in an area that would be hard for me to get to. I filled her food bowl and I talked to myself. My husband had stayed outside and I wished that he didn't. It felt like someone was in that bedroom again. I wanted to go get him because my immediate and first response was fear. I could even see movement and hear something low. There was a cat toy right outside the door, like someone had been playing with the cat. I didn't let it know that I knew it was there. I filled Sophie's food and water, talked to her, sang a song, and got out of there fast, because it still bothered, bothered me that I knew something was there. I ran out to my husband's car and we left. The next time I went to take care of Sophie, I asked my husband to go in with me. I told him something was in there. We went in the house and I didn't find Sophie this time, but she had been eating the food. The cat toy was gone and the presence was still there, but felt farther from me in terms of not being as close as the last time. I thought it might be because my husband was there. He knows that when I say something is there, we don't talk about it unless I say we can. I usually don't want whatever is there to know that I know that it is there, because that opens up a whole can of stuff sometimes. We took care of Sophie. My husband did walk upstairs and then came back down, showing me with his face that he saw nothing out of the ordinary. He doesn't see, hear, or feel things like I do, and my youngest daughter does. When I got home, I messaged my friend, and I finally told her that I think that she might think I am crazy, but who the heck is in that bedroom? She was quiet for a minute, 
And I was like, oh no, have I weirded her out? And then she said, what do you mean? That room kind of bothers me. Denny's, the husband, daughters, had that room, and I always worried what they were doing. I told her that I could sense something, but that I wasn't sure what or who it was, and I'd try to figure it out the next time. The last and final time that I went to go and take care of the cat, I tried to take JC with me. Now I have stories on here about JC and some of the things that we have experienced. She seems to have a different sense than I do. Mine is usually auditory, and if I concentrate, I can get information. JC will see them. She says that she can talk to them, but chooses not to. She saw some in high school and told me about how she did a really good job of not letting them know that she could see them. Them being the ghost or whatever they are, I think they are ghosts. Well, JC was having an emo teenager day, so she was not willing to go. My husband went. He took care of the cat. I sat on the steps going up to the stairs, and I concentrated on the energy. Many times, this lets them know that I know that they are there. It was a male energy, related to her husband. Felt like he might have, have a mustache. I protected myself and then told him, I know you are here. Is there anything that you want to tell me? What I found was that he seemed to feel sorry that he scared me. He did not wish to talk. There were some boots that he liked. He was just passing through. Then the energy faded pretty completely. I contacted my friend. It turned out that her husband's father had passed about six months ago or so. I am not sure about the boots, as she said that they were her grandfather's. She was worried there was something evil in the room. I told her that wasn't the case. I also told her that it was just passing through, and that was what the energy seemed to say before fading away. She, hold, she sold the house shortly after that. She told me that she really hoped the spirit was her grandfather, but I told her he is connected to your husband. I'm not sure if they might have had something of his dad's in the house. However, I think she attracts her old family members. She moved into a brand new building, and there's a female spirit there. The spirit will not talk to me. It doesn't really even want me to know that it's there, and will often leave. It is connected to my friend, and leaves a cold spot in the hallway. I've spent over a year trying to figure out who the spirit is, but so far, I haven't had any luck. She showed herself to me in terms that she let me feel that she was there, but I can't even get an image of her. I only know female, and I can't even figure out an age, which I usually can. I've never met a spirit as closed as that one. I need to take JC sometime. Either way, I thought this story was sweet and kind of heartwarming instead of spooky, and I hope that you enjoyed it. If there are ideas how I might respectfully figure out who is in the hall, let me know. Otherwise, I'd just leave that spirit be. It has always been quiet and kind to me, and it doesn't bother anyone. I really only want to figure out who it is so I can tell my friend. So far, it feels like it is either a grandparent, aunt, or possibly a child she miscarried, 
but I cannot say for sure. Our next story comes from the same author as the last, and this story is called My Upstairs Room. The upstairs of the house was all mine. As a teenager, that's a beautiful thing, especially when I had to share a room with my sister for as long as I could remember. I was the oldest, but my brother was born when I was almost three, and I would guess that's when she and I started sharing. If you have followed my other stories, there was a really large closet or storage area that my dad built into a bathroom at the top of the stairs on the right. Then you had to go left and make another sharp left turn to walk along kind of a hallway so the stairs would have been to your left in the hall area if you were facing the bedroom. At this hall area, you could see the stairs and a little bit of the main floor if you looked over the side of a built-in bookcase to keep anyone from falling over the edge. There was also two rooms upstairs connected by a door. In the first room, I just put my large antique dresser and a few other odds and ends. It was a small space, not even big enough for a bed, except maybe a twin. I used all of the bookshelf space as I was an avid reader. In my main large bedroom area, I had my bed, stereo, phone, and a desk. The closet to store clothes was also in this area. The upstairs was weird but never particularly scary. I only had one experience that unnerved me. First, no animal in that house was willing to be upstairs. I've talked about the animals of our house before not wanting to be in certain areas, and the upstairs was no exception. I would bring the little dog, Weenie, upstairs for company, and she would always leave. A couple of times, I trapped her with me, by closing the door between the two rooms, so she had to stay with me. She just looked sad. She'd sit facing the door and pretty much ignore me. This made me sad. I am an animal lover, and she was supposed to be my dog, but didn't want to spend any time with me if I was upstairs. I would end up opening the door, and she'd run all the way to the stairs. Then she ran to those stairs, the way she ran to those stairs was very similar to how she ran to the stairs when she was trying to leave the basement, except she'd never look back at me and she'd just go to the main level. None of the cats were willing to sleep upstairs either. So here's one thing that happened. At night, I'd be ready to go to bed, in bed with the light off. I kept the night light on because without it, it was almost like there were no windows in the room. There were, but no light was coming in, and I've never been a total blackness person. We were talking, we are talking total blackness, as in you can't see your hand in front of your face. I'd feel an animal jump on the bed and walk around like they were looking for a comfortable spot. I would look to see who had decided to join me, and there was no animal. This happened repeatedly. Many times, even after I looked for the animal, it still felt like there was one walking on the bed. It got to a point that I stopped looking and referred to it as the ghost cat. 
Ghost Cat joined me on numerous nights. I had warm spots that made no sense. This only happened a couple of times. I came upstairs to get ready for something and there'd be a spot that looked like someone was sitting on my bed. I always made my bed. There was a dip in it. The first time, I just stood there watching it. After a few minutes of nothing, I rushed over and I touched the area. It was warm, as if someone had just been sitting there. There was also a floral type scent that accompanied it. I can't say what kind of floral scent, just that it reminded me of flowers. The next time it happened, I sat next to the spot. It was warm again, with the same floral scent. Next, my radio was a source of interest. I worked really hard one summer, and with one of my last paychecks, I bought a CD player. This was a big deal, as CDs were becoming all the rage, and it felt like everyone had one but me. I am a huge music fan, so every morning I had the radio on. When school started that fall, I turned off the radio. I would make it all the way to the top of the stairs, and the radio would come back on. Figuring I somehow didn't get the button pushed all the way, I returned to the room, turned it off. I would then walk back and get almost to the top of the stairs before it would come back on again. I went back and turned the radio off. I stood in front of the radio, watching the little red power light fade out. I walked away to the top of the stairs, and the radio was back on. I turned it off again, and I said, I'm going to be late. We can listen to music later. The radio stayed off. That happened more than one time. It always ended if I mentioned listening to the music later. Eventually, that did stop, and I didn't have to say that we would listen to music later. Maybe whatever it was knew that we would listen more later. I also think of this when I think of the main level and the odd thing I had had happen with my daughter's toy in the crib. I would have considered it an, an electrical thing, but when I mentioned it to my dad, saying that we needed an electrician, he reminded me that the electrical had been completely redone when we moved in as it was an out-of-date according to the inspectors. Then I'd hear footsteps coming upstairs at night. I always figured that it was my dad coming upstairs to use the bathroom. It made no sense as a downstairs bedroom would be closer for him, but he told me he preferred the upstairs bathroom, so I figured maybe he was coming in to use it. I never heard the bathroom door close. Never heard a flush. I got up once, and from the doorway, I could see the bathroom door. No one was there. I stopped checking after a while. I went through a bad case of insomnia once. My insomnia consisted of me waking up at exactly 3 a.m. I would eventually just get up because experience taught me that I would lay there until 6 a.m. and not sleep. This is the one unnerving time that I had. I was up. I remember lying on the floor listening to music and either writing or drawing. Then I heard the footsteps come up the stairs. I thought that maybe it was my dad. He sometimes had insomnia too. 
and I figured he heard me up because my room was directly above theirs. The footsteps got to the top and then went back down. If you read about the basement, this is very similar to what happened in the basement. Then they came back up and then went back down. I hoped that it was the dog. I didn't turn on the light in the second half of the room, but I got to the doorway and I watched. I would have I would have seen someone's head if they were coming up the stairs, but I never saw one. But I heard it to the top and then back down. I rushed over and I looked down the side of the bookcase to see if maybe it was Weenie. No small dog. I ran back to my doorway because the footsteps were on the way back up. Nothing ever appeared, so I shut my door in between the two rooms. The final comment on the upstairs. My dad mentioned more than once. Anything rolling around in your room upstairs during the day? Confused, I say, not that I know of, why? And he replied, well I could have sworn someone was walking around up there. I even went up there but I didn't see anyone. This happened more than one time. He told me that he had been up to my room as he'd heard the footsteps. If someone was upstairs walking around, you knew it. He never found anyone. I even had it happen to me a couple of times when I was home alone and expected to find a pet, but nothing was ever there. That concludes what happened in my teenage home. I do have more stories, but they will focus on a different house. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I do apologize that it's a little shorter than what I have been doing recently, but I figured it wouldn't be so bad. Plus, I'm trying to get ready for the big Halloween special that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Now, I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories, and if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to eventually reach my goal of 500 subscribers. I actually, as of the day of this recording, I just hit 390, so we only need 110 more subscribers and we will get the YouTube exclusive bonus episode. But once again, thank you all for listening. And make sure to keep those doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.